Hello and welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event professionals about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business around live events. Whether you're running small meetups or conferences, trade shows, and concerts, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. So it's been a pretty busy week here, Prague. I think I feel like I'm saying that almost every week. It's Wednesday, the 8th of May, when I'm recording this. In terms of Events Frame, Events Frame, by the way, is our software and also the sponsor of this podcast. So check it out. It's a ticketing and attendee management system. If you're in any kind of live events, I'd love you to check it out. Super cheap prices from $20 a month. So have a look at that. But with Events Frame, we've been really busy. We've been hiring co-founder, sales and marketing co-founder, because we're kind of still early stages, so we, you know, he's getting co-founder status. A guy, a guy called Evan, really nice guy. So he's working on really ramping up our sales. He's doing Google AdWords at the moment, helping get our website across on WordPress and looking at direct sales. So excited to be doing that. And in terms of apps events, obviously my main business and the Google for education partner company it's a busy time of the year like now in before kind of june we're really planning our events for the fall or the the autumn if you're british basically we run events with schools so there's a real kind of ebb and flow to the school year you know like april may schools are kind of there's time to talk to people then you get to june and it's exam season everything goes crazy and people are hard to contact then you've got the summer break and then you've got the fall starting in September, October. And that's kind of the busy time for schools, even though we actually run quite a lot in the US in the summer. So so when it gets to the fall, we're running kind of events back to back all through September, October. But we've got to agree them now because as most people know who run conferences and summits, you've normally got a three to six month window where you need to plan it before. So lots going on, really good. Been a lot of public holidays here, here in Europe, so people are away. It's actually a public holiday here today in Prague. My wife's meeting a friend of hers, so I had, you know, it's quite nice to come into the office sometimes when there's not much going on you know the phone isn't going people are quiet it, it was cool actually I, I actually quite enjoy sometimes working on the holidays really really busy time and really excited about what we're going to be doing uh, in autumn so this week's interview is with a guy called John Micton a really interesting guy John's been a friend of mine for about nine years now I actually checked the emails and we first spoke in 2010 and he's, he lives in Luxembourg but he's worked with international schools all across the world. And before I really started running apps events, I didn't know much about international schools. But but honestly, when I discovered it, I really wish I'd gone to work for one in my 20s. I mean, they're basically schools that have the English language curriculum. You know, they might have the UK system or the US system or there's something called international baccalaureate. But they're all across the world. And teachers, you know, normally have short-term contracts at each school, maybe three years. So you can kind of live, you know, you can have three years in Hong Kong and then go to Africa, then go to Europe and live all around the world. And that's exactly what John has done. So it's a really interesting topic. A lot of people don't don't know about it. So we get into international schools, but also with John, he's a really... Uh, kind of sought after thought leader, you know, person who, you know, influencer, although that's kind of a dirty word, in terms of uh, technology in schools and really, really interesting. And I want to talk about how he built up his profile because he's a really sought after speaker. People want him to present at seminars and, and training sessions and also conferences. So, you know, I really want to get into that. And also, I want to talk about uh, running conferences because John and me have run about nine events together at this point. So, we, we've had a lot of experience working together. So, uh, and, and running events in Switzerland, in Luxembourg, in, in Prague, Czech Republic. So a lot to talk about. Really a little bit different to some of the usual guests, but I think you're going to really enjoy it. So let's get on to the interview with John. 
Okay, and welcome to the events podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to John Micton. John's a friend of mine and, and definitely someone who's been something of a, a mentor and, and, and really helped me, like genuinely helped me build Apps Events, my, my company. So it's really great to talk to him. John's worked, uh, well, actually, I actually don't know a lot about John's early career. I want to get into that, but John's worked for international schools for a long time. And that's a really interesting topic, something I didn't really know about until 10 years ago. So I want to talk about international schools and how you can work around the world with, with international schools. And then obviously we've got an events theme here. So we're going to talk a bit about how John's built up his communities. He's a very kind of well-known person in his community and as a speaker and trainer and online. So want to get into that. So John, a huge welcome to, to the podcast. Thank you, Dan. I feel very honored to be part of this podcast and look forward to the conversation. That's good. Now, John, I've just got a question for you. When I was just looking at our first email, when would you think we first met? I think it must have been 2007 or 8. Ah, wrong. It was actually 2010. I thought it was a bit oh. earlier as well. Yeah, 2010. So it was, it was nine mm-hmm. years Okay, we were actually introduced by Matt Hayes, a guy, Matt Hayes. I've, I actually haven't spoken to Matt in a long time. I don't know if you have, but he's a guy who was in Prague. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I don't know why I said 2008, but anyway, 2010, yeah, I remember Matt Hayes introducing us. And yeah. uh, we were we were talking about Google, I think, Jakob and I, my IT manager, yep. and Matt said, oh, you need to talk to them. Exactly, and yeah. And it at that time doing the coursework yeah exactly yeah we, we had, I had a software well course director we had back then which was um and, and and i was you know it was interesting you were kind of so i'd started apps events and and i hadn't run any events at this point it was actually called cloud source solutions a company if you remember and i um I remember. Uh, yeah and I, you were actually my second customer although you know i was kind of cagey about it but you, you were very helpful you were great and really helping me get started the first one was anglo-american university and i i helped set them up with google apps um, and all that stuff. And then, then it was you guys. And it, it was great. It was a really interesting time. You know, I was like starting a new thing. Uh, it, it, just a side point. It's amazing how the time goes. Like nine years, it's just like, you know, it's, it's crazy to think. Like, I remember your daughter was like a, a kid there and she's at university now. It's, it's really... Yeah, exactly. My son's graduated. So times have flown quickly. I, I think what's interesting is also when we started this relationship, the whole Google education thing was really at the beginning. Yeah, it was. It was really interesting there. Like the, so we ran the first ever, John and me together, ran the first ever Google for Education conference in Europe. We ran a smaller event first called uh, Google Workshop for Educators, if you remember. And and then we ran the next year, so that was in 2011, and 2012 we ran the conference. And, and it, was, it was crazy. We had people turning up from, from Asia, from the U.S., um, all, all over, like not, not just international school people, people from all kinds of places. I and mean, you know what's really interesting about that first conference is like, like from that event, there's the, I mean, we've run hundreds of events since then. I mean, we ran over 300 last year, but that one event we ran, the first ever one, I've got way more friends from that conference than from all the other ones. Like, I, I, don't, I wonder if it's just because when you start something, you're much more open to meet people and like, cause you know, guys are ruined. I don't know how many people that I bump into that I'm doing uh, work within my own context here at the International School of Luxembourg, or when I'm consulting with schools or doing workshops, or presenting, that say, oh, I met you at the Prague event. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a long time ago. I think also because it was the first time anybody did something like that with Google. I think so. It, it kind of marked people. And I think we had a lot of the people that attended were the people that were saw the, saw the power of the Google app suite and were thinking, I need to be there. You know, it was kind of the coming out party in some ways. So it, no, Yeah, I, it was just, it was a weird atmosphere. And, and so many people like, like Wayne in Bangkok, I'm still friends of working with. I mean, Roland from California. I was just met him last month actually in San Francisco. Uh, tons of people. Yeah, it was it was it was a real 
you know, we did it well. Like, I mean, I'd never organized a conference before then. That was, you know, and that was kind of a big event to do. You know, I think we had maybe 170 people, something like that. It was, it was pretty big, you know. Quite a large turnout, much more than we anticipated. And, you know, yeah. And we, I remember, because Jakob and I were kind of doing the stuff at the International School of Prague. And we were just like, wow, this is actually much bigger. But it's amazing how we pulled it off. Yeah, it was really like, and that, and that, that, that kickstarted, you know, because at the time I was just wanting to do, that, to do that one event, actually, you know, and, that, and actually it's funny how you just go down a certain route and then we did, because I was doing a lot of other consulting, you know, like in terms of Google stuff and just running that one event, I really enjoyed it and thought I'll just do more of these events. And that now that, and that became pretty much all I did for the first four years, you know, literally just repeating that kind of event across the world, like across Asia, Africa, the US, you know, funny, funny how it goes. But John, I want to take well, a step if back. Your, if you look at, I was just posting on the Facebook group that I uh, manage. We posted your, uh, all the events that you're doing and, you know, Asia is chock block full. Yeah, Asia's huge. Like I'm, I'm actually, so I don't know if I mentioned this, I'm taking the family out there for two months because uh, we've got so much going on in the fall. I just thought it'd be really cool to start, um, especially because, as you know, I've got a, a 10 month old baby now. Uh, and, you know, I've, Patricia and me were saying, look, before he goes to school, we can just we can just spend six months, two months, a year, different places, you know, why not? So we're going to go, as we've got so much in Asia, we're just going to go out there, spend the first month in Thailand, in Bangkok, where we've got a lot going on, but then we'll be probably in Hong Kong, probably Philippines, Japan. It, I think it'll be, a, it'll be a cool thing. Oh, that's really exciting. But look, John, I want to take a step back because, you know, obviously some people listen to this work for international schools, but a lot of people who, you know, listen to this podcast are people kind of involved in running events and things, and they don't know. And it's, and it's interesting because I, before I met you, I, probably maybe a year or two before, I'd started to learn about international schools. Before that, I didn't really know about them. And, and just to give a bit of background, I mean, John, you can correct me, but essentially an international school is typically an English language school, although there's German and other language schools, based in, you know, overseas, not in a non-English speaking country. And they typically run either the, the UK curriculum, the US curriculum, or, or something called the International Baccalaureate. So they're kind of private schools, uh, typically English language in foreign countries. Usually independent, so they are financed independently and have a board of trustees or governors. Sometimes they're partly funded by companies. So in the Middle East, you have a lot of uh, companies that finance like Aramco schools. You also have schools that are financed by uh, for-profit organizations, Nord Anglia, GEMS. Cognita, uh, yeah. There are quite a few out there. Uh, so, they're, they're, you know, it's become a huge market and it's a growing market because as with globalization, you have more and more people being, uh, sta you know, stationed or shipped or posted in different countries with their families and they want to have kind of a baseline common education. And international schools really provide that service because if I'm stationed or posted in Hong Kong and then I move to Germany, the chances are I'm not going to have my kid learn Cantonese and then switch to uh, German. But I know that there are these international schools and they've grown and now there are uh, organizations that accredit them, like the Council for International Schools. They have organizations that provide the professional development, like ECIS. So it's become a huge business. And as more and more people are working abroad in different contexts with families, they need to have a sound education. So that's kind of you, the, the kind of framework. This is kind of the DNA of these international schools. And they vary greatly in their curriculum and also their philosophy. Their quality. 
and the politics and how they're governed. Yeah, yeah definitely. One thing to add to that, because there's a really interesting Economist article. I think I shared it with you that, um, yes, like, uh, increasingly like the increasingly it's more than 50 percent local uh, kids going to international schools now it, typically it was always like you said like foreigners working abroad or people running businesses abroad but like there, there was a quote in there about how you know when people make money they, they want their kids to learn english and if they make a lot of money they want their kids to be educated in english and so it's really interesting how i've even the change i've seen especially in asia and the middle east in in the last 10 years about um more and more local uh, international schools and more and more private ones, something like 70% are actually for profit at this point, which, you know, back in 20, 30 years ago, it was probably the vast majority were, were non-profit organizations. Absolutely. And the for-profit schools have really seen the, the niche market and, you know, their high returns. And places like China, uh, you see many international schools opening up that are catering to a Chinese audience. So, you know, a, a very educated middle class and upper middle class are educated in North America or Australia and New Zealand or England and then coming back and wanting that kind of education for their kids. And India is another great example. So often you'll hear the word international school, but, you know, you have the purists that believe it should be a certain way. And so that that name is being used quite liberally as a way also as a marketing uh tool to attract people. We're an international school, so people make an assumption it has a certain uh, cachet, a certain quality, but that's not always the case. And it's like anything, you know, when the market gets bigger, you get a lot of players coming in and posing as maybe the big players, but maybe don't deliver that same quality. Definitely. Now, now what, what's interesting about it is um, it, it's a great opportunity to really work across the world. And that's something I want to chat about because that's something you've done. I mean, I want to go through the countries where you've worked, but it's it's funny because, it, like I say, if, if I'd have known about it in my 20s, I think I would have gone to work for an international school, cause especially because I was kind of working in IT, you know, I started off in technical jobs and and I, I, it wouldn't have occurred to me there's a bunch of sort of non-teaching technical jobs in these skills which you, which you could do. So yeah. I'm very curious, how did you get started? Because I know you actually worked in like advertising or some kind of business role before, didn't you? I worked uh, in advertising. I did a stint at the Swiss television. I'm originally from Switzerland, and I worked for Warner in Boston, and we were selling it's when uh, CNN, MTV, and ESPN were first launched right. in the early 80s. And one of the things that they were starting to do was selling ad time, a cable ad and TV ad, and I was involved with that. And then I worked for a, a newspaper in San Francisco, the Bay Guardian, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but in those days, it was kind of the alternative newspaper, uh, alternative political views and also entertainment culture. And I was their senior sales rep there. That's so I had a background in that. And then uh, my current wife, Tracy, and I uh, went to Japan and we lived there. And then we went on a long bike ride. We cycled uh, around the world for a year. And there we bumped into in Singapore to a woman that was a acquaintance of a friend who was an international school educator and i remember wow. we went to her apartment in singapore and we had this image of teachers you know generally in north america or europe that are well paid but you know they're not rich and she had this beautiful penthouse suite on top of a floor with a, a maid that was cooking Sing and singapore is crazy there's um what, what's what's the big school in singapore um singapore american school singapore she, american school yeah yeah she was the curriculum coordinator at that time there and we suddenly saw that and we were like what is this and we learned more about it you know through her she was very gracious and hosted us and also gay and then when we came back 
after our bike ride, we decided my wife was in the retail business and I was in advertising. We thought of reinventing ourselves. And uh, in California at that time, there was a big move uh, to encourage people from the business world to go into education. And we both enrolled at UCLA. They had programs uh, to encourage people that had been in a professional capacity in another area to explore education. And there was funding and a program. And we went through UCLA. And there, when we were at UCLA, one of our professors had been a superintendent at an international school. And so that topic came back, and he had suggested that we go to recruitment fair. We were at the time also teaching at LA Unified as we were studying, and we went to recruitment fair, and we ended up in Tanzania in our first international school, and there we go. Cool. So and, uh, there's a few things about that. for people. Anyone listen to this and may be interested in um, looking at this, uh, because, you know, it's a similar situation now in a sense that like, like, for example, if you want to be a teacher in the UK, there's a huge teacher shortage. There's a bunch of ways you can, you know, very easily and cheaply get your teacher certification and, and even go and do, do something like this. And, and, and most of these jobs are found at job fairs. There's a bunch of these job fairs, isn't there, in the US and in, in, mm-hmm. in Europe. And, and, yeah. and that's essentially how most people get their jobs with international schools. Exactly. And, and I think one of the things that often, it, it depends what kind of international school. I think the one thing, if you are going to explore that, you really need to do your homework on the schools. Yeah. Because there are all kinds of schools and there are all kinds of packages and deals. And you really have to be quite discerning and really do your homework. Because like anything, there are different levels of quality and services that are provided. And I think as an educator, you want to ensure that the first experience is very positive. So yeah. I definitely would do my homework. You want to make sure schools are accredited. You very likely want to go through a more, what I'd say, reputable recruitment agency and also make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into, read the contract and things like that. I would say the international schools that I've had the pleasure of working with often require uh, experience before, so five years experience. They're usually looking for teachers that have had some experience. They won't just hire people right out of the university. Sure, but, but in terms of like, you know, people working for IT roles and things, I mean, obviously there's now this, I think because there's so many international schools now, it might be possible to get a, a job in like a kind of more lower rank school and then use that as a stepping stone, you know, if, if you do a good job. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you're in the IT world, especially if you have some pedagogic background, I mean, there are two tiers. There's a whole technical aspect. So if you're a network manager, infrastructure, databases, there is a big a market for that. The problem, you you compete then against local talent, which yeah. often is much cheaper. Yeah. But if you're a pedagogue or you're you know, digital literacy, information literacy, digital citizenship, digital coaching, those kind of areas, then there's a lot of opportunity and there's a big market. And schools understand that that's whole digital education, the literacy, ethics, citizenship, information literacy are critical skills for the current world that we live in and for the future. So there's always a huge need for that type of profile of person. Definitely. I think if you're on the technical side, the thing that you tend to compete against is local talent. So in my situation now, this is my sixth international school, all the IT managers that I've supervised always have been locals. It's rare that you would hire an expatriate because you have that local talent and then you often pay them at the local uh, salaries. Sure. So it's so carrying your journey. I mean, Tanzania is interesting because I've actually been to the school. You worked I mean, unconnected. Like we actually realized it was the same place. We ran a couple of events there. And it must have been, I was there, I guess, two or three years ago, but I guess it must have been a really different world when you were there. Was it, was it pretty crazy in terms of the, the, the day-to-day life out there? Oh, 
Oh yeah, I mean, I have a great internet story. So when I got there in 93, we didn't have internet. And then we petitioned the board and the director at the time uh, to get internet. And uh, a colleague of mine, uh, uh, Johnson Jacob, who is the IT director in Hanover, we actually dug a trench and put the cable down from a computer terminal, an IBM computer terminal in the only room that was air conditioned to a main phone line because we only had one phone that really worked reliably. And wow. we would get teachers to come and write their emails. We would copy them onto floppy disk. And then we would drive up to the University of Dar es Salaam and give the floppy disk to somebody there. And then they would send it out to the internet. And then seven days later, we would come back, collect the emails and bring them back to the terminal. And you know, things like that were and you know, just getting parts and things like that were really complicated. We were a Mac school and you know, nothing could be bought locally, so often we would have to bring things in bags and duffel bags. Uh, so there, you know, it was very much kind of that adventure. There was an edge and you were really in the forefront. And, you know, we didn't have power. There were a lot of power outages, often water. So all those, you know, adversities actually were wonderful ways to be creative and really engage as a group of people and just thinking out of the box. They forced you to be resilient, but also have fun at the same time. Definitely. I mean, yeah, it's still it's still got a bit of an edge and it, it's, they still have power outages and all kinds of stuff. But it, it's, it, yeah, it is a, a different, Santa, who, Santa Kumar, who was a tech director when I was there, uh, he's a really cool guy, and you know, it's it's a different set of problems in Africa. But but when you were there, it was it was a whole new level. I think Have, having no internet, I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. Yeah, and, and so I think you know, and, and when I was in China, we couldn't get certain things, so we would actually bring laptops in and duffel bags. Yeah. So so, so so where did you go next? So basically, I mean, with, with international schools, typically, you were you do, have you done like normally three year contracts, or what have your contracts typically been? Uh, it, it varies. I've had contracts that have lasted nine years, five years. I, I think often it depends on you and your family. So yeah. when I was in Tanzania, Tracy and I had our first child, Julian, our son. And then we realized that maybe that environment was not the best environment to, you know, have a young baby because Tracy uh, got malaria. And they were just, you know, they were. it wasn't that it was uncomfortable or the place was bad. It just, for us, it was a time to look for something else. And we moved to Beijing. So we went to a recruitment fair in London at the time. It was the ECIS was recruiting and we got a job at the Western Academy of Beijing in Beijing. And so we went to Beijing. And we were there for four years. So usually it depends. And then, you know, it depends what your career path is. I was really interested in, in the IT area and I was interested in becoming a coordinator and having more leadership. So often when you're working your way up or however you want to call it, sometimes, it, you know, there, you can't do the move within the institution. It's better to go to another one. And that has been my trajectory every time I've gone to another school because I'm looking for a position with more challenges and responsibility. Definitely. It's funny about Beijing, actually. I'm talking to a good friend of mine, Dave Freeman. I'm not, I'm not sure if you know Dave Freeman. You may have seen him online. He's, uh, I've got some really, really interesting guy. Flicks, uh, speaks fluent um, Mandarin, like grew up, grew up there. His parents ran an, uh, they were missionaries around an orphanage in Taiwan. So his, his, his friends were like the kids in, you know, the, the, the kids in the orphanage. So, and he used to work for a school called Morrison Academy. And now he works for a Chinese billionaire in Beijing. And we're talking about doing an event together, hopefully end of this year. So I've never been, never been to Beijing and we're going to do, it's not going to be a Google event because there's no Google in China. It's going to be, a, I'll actually like, I might try to get you involved in it. It could, could be some interesting stuff, but uh, what, what was Beijing like as a place to live? Like obviously there's a crazy pollution and traffic and things, but was it enjoyable to live there? 
You know, I think we were talking to a lot of people that have lived in China over the last 20 years. I think we were very fortunate because it was still, China was at the beginnings of developing. So just to give you a context, when we were there, there were three ring roads. I think now there are eight yeah. and we left in 2000. So the, the growth has been massive. I think we were there and you still had a lot of the old hutongs and what I would say kind of the, the last remnants of that kind of Maoist communist China that we all see through, you know, kind of with a certain uh, through history and national geographic books. So I think, but there was definitely an accelerated change. The school grew immensely when we left. There were maybe 250 kids. The school now has 1,800 kids. Oh. So uh, there's been immense growth. We loved it. It was, you know, still at that time, you couldn't just travel by yourself. You had to go through the official Chinese tourist office. So, you know, it was still, there were still those kind of adventurous challenges to it. I think it's become much more open. It's a first world country. It's, you know, cosmopolitan, all the trappings that you find in any big city you find in uh, Beijing. At that time, we were really in that transition where they were moving to that. Yeah. And uh, no, it was a great adventure and it was wonderful. We were in a school that was growing. We were the, the school had opened up the year before we came. So there was a lot of great opportunity. We actually started a laptop program in 1996. And I don't know if we're the first international school to start a laptop program. I don't think there are any historical records to, yeah. but things like that. And also we didn't have internet. We got the internet in. So there were a lot of things where you, as a team of people working in that environment, you always felt you were kind of, you know, trailblazing new things. And that was really exciting. There was kind of an energy and edge to the day uh, that was really quite invigorating when you're in that environment of, you know, teaching kids and working with kids and colleagues. Definitely. Yeah. What was, um, I guess you were living, were you living the, the school, organized an apartment close to the school or on the school when you, when you were living there then? Yeah, we were, it was funny, we actually lived in the old summer palace. So wow. when we got there, there were some restrictions where people could live. You couldn't live anywhere. So they were dedicated apartments for foreigners. And our school actually put us in this village, which were old hutongs, which are these big houses where you have an interior courtyard. And we actually, this sounds crazy, we had every day a cleaning service would come and clean our whole place. So it was like, it felt like a hotel, but we didn't, weren't in a hotel. That's cool. And, and the two years in, they changed the law and you could live wherever. And the school actually moved us closer. Uh, so we lived in the Asian Games Village, which now is the Olympic Village. And uh, yeah, so, you know, it was it was a somewhat compoundy living because at that time you could just live anywhere, but that opened up gradually and more and more faculty would go and find their own places. Uh, we did get shut down for 10 days because the U.S. Uh, during the uh, Balkan War, the Serbian, the Chinese embassy was bombed in uh in I remember that happening, yeah. And so we were an international school and we were confined to our apartments for out of days and we ran school using Claris, uh, I don't know if you remember Claris homepage, which was an Apple product to make websites. And we would get teachers to give us the content. And then in my office, in my apartment, I would put the uh, uh, floppy disk with the content. And I had a Claris homepage website. And we would communicate to parents that way. And I would use the dial-up. 
and then dial up and then we would you know post the things and then other parents could get activities and things like that wow. so it's that kind of stuff which really you know you felt was kind of frontiers like uh a work that really made it exciting and there was a bit of an edge to it and now i think you know things are so seamless you know we have our iphones and everything is just instant but at that day there was you definitely felt you were kind of you know a breaking uh, new ground in some way. I think China. I think the Chinese world always feels always feels foreign, though, just because of the scale of it and have a difference yeah. in 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 the language and, and the written language and everything. Absolutely. You know, even yeah. I mean, although now I mean, like I've got a few friends that live in Taiwan and, and commute, like like Dave, the guy I mentioned, does. Just because the, the pollution now is, is crazy. I mean, it, it has a serious effect on your health. You know, if you live there all the time. You know, it's... And that's why we left because uh, in Beijing we had our daughter Sophia, and both of them contracted chronic asthma. And actually, Tracy and I and a few colleagues of ours, we used to cycle from the summer palace to uh, where the school was, which is a good 50-minute hour bike ride. And we would wear these masks. And when we would take them off, there'd be charcoal falling off. And like, you know, it was just unbelievable, the pollution at that time. That's crazy. And most of that was because they were still doing a lot, all the, like our apartment buildings and everything were heated by coal. And a lot of the factories and uh, the, the industry was really, it was, you know, some days you couldn't see four or five meters ahead. And both of our kids contracted this asthma. We actually had to give them uh, asthmatic steroids so they could breathe properly. And we just decided as a family that this was just not healthy for them. And not all kids contract that, but I think our two kids just, it would, the environment was really bad. And so we went recruiting again, as you do when you're in that uh, <clears throat> community. And we went recruiting to London and got a job in uh, Tokyo. Yeah, which was Tokyo, another one of my favorite places. I love, I love Japan. Fantastic city, my favorite city, absolutely. Yeah. It is, you know, it's funny to talk about favorite cities in Asia. I've, I've got a, I'm not sure. I like for me, it's either Tokyo, Bangkok, or Hong Kong. I think probably Hong Kong. There's just something about that place. I just, I've been going there since since mid '90s, and I just, I really like it. You know, early '90s actually, when it was still British. I think it's also your relationship. So my wife and I, Tracy, had worked in Japan prior to. Uh, uh, becoming educators, and she worked for Mitsubishi Caterpillar, and I worked in a local government office, and we actually learned decent Japanese. So I think for us, Tokyo, because we can speak Japanese and we had that local connection, and when we went as educators to the American School in Japan, there was already that strong connection with the culture. So I think that often has a big impact on how you, but I agree, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Jakarta. I know a lot of people don't like Jakarta, but I have definitely time for Jakarta and Taipei. I've never but been to Jakarta as well. Yeah, that's my favorite city because it's just—it's yeah—the the Japanese culture and just the city itself. There's just anything is possible. Definitely, and Taipei as well. I've really—I love Taiwan. That's the other place I've, I've only been started really going a lot the last few years, and that's another place. That, uh, I was there twice last year with the family, actually. I really like it. No, I love the opportunity to live in these different countries long-term, three, four years, and you really get an opportunity and chance to get to know the cultures, even though you're in an expat bubble and often you're not interacting with the locals. But if you make an effort or spend your holidays and really go and explore the country, and that's something we always did. We wouldn't go... We would always make sure to spend our holidays in country and travel as much as possible. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to do it because that's that that's definitely a downside that a lot of people almost try to deny about working for international schools. That a lot of people stay in, in a kind of a bubble of not not only just expats but often people in their own school and and it, it's it's sometimes hard to break out of it. I think. 
I think it is, and in some cultures, it, it has to do with language and, uh, you know, just being able to master the language enough to be able to interact with people. And in Beijing, we both studied Chinese and we did the best we can, but we never were at really a level where we could interact as equals with people. And then in Africa, the issue was an economic one, you know. Sure. Even though we got to speak good Swahili, it didn't matter. We always represented an income and money that the locals did not have. And I think in Japan was really the first time where we felt we could connect with the locals and our neighbors because we had the language. I'd love to and, learn Japanese. I've heard it's actually not that hard a language to learn, is it? Like it's, it's, it's surprisingly quite an easy language compared to most other Asian languages to learn. I think it is because it's not tonal, but yeah. it does. If you're going to read and write it, it gets quite complicated. The sure. grammar is quite complicated because depending if you speak to a, a female or a male or if they're older or younger, if they're hierarchical. So there's a lot of innuendos to it. But I think... Uh, you can quickly get a basic level and uh, speak it quite easily because it's not tonal. And what you see is what you say. Definitely. So uh, Japan, was that after that you came back to Europe and, and your European stuff? Yeah, so after Japan, I actually got headhunted to uh, come to Prague. Yeah, which is where we met. That's where we met. And I was there for nine years. And that was a, a fantastic adventure because when I landed there, there was just an IT manager and myself and... Uh, over the years, we, you know, with the leadership team there and uh, Jakob Servi, my the IT manager that you know that we worked with, that school really engaged in an incredible process of changing and growth, and what I would say innovation. And really, I feel so fortunate. In the nine years, we implemented laptop programs, we brought the Google apps, we did a lot of things with digital citizenship, and both the directors there, Robert Landau. And Arnie Bieber, I think, you know, had very strong visions and the leadership teams there, all of them were really engaged in working and the faculty, it was really just, you know, you have those moments in your career where you feel you hit the sweet spot and, you know, everything is in place and there were a lot of challenges, but I think as a school community, the faculty, the students, the parents, the leadership team, uh, everything really fell in place and I had a wonderful opportunity to really innovate and bring about some significant changes, not alone, but with the team, but having that autonomy to encourage people and build a team that really, uh, I feel, made a difference. And that school, you've been there many times since it's really grown and built from that. But that really was a, a unique experience. Definitely. And I think it was also at the time when a lot of things were changing. You know, YouTube came online, the Google search engine, and things were really changing, you know, Apple, the whole iPhone, the iPad. So as the pedagogies were changing, the hardware was changing, and kind of there was this relationship. And we hosted the Apple uh, Global Leadership Conference, and they were and working with you and the apps events. There were just these things happening kind of in, in unison. Not only was the hardware becoming more seamless, it was the whole idea that you know, apps, that app culture where you didn't have to be a coder to be able to do a website, that you could collaborate, not having to, you know, create a unique network or it was just, it became more, everything became more consumer. And friendly. also it was, it was, it was a transition to, to, to cloud computing being the kind of the standard exactly. as opposed to just like a, a hybrid, like schools were moving to like, you know, 60, 70, hundred percent in some cases cloud in this time as well. 
Exactly. And before we had to have servers and we needed file servers and everything stored. And suddenly all that disappeared and you could just open a Google account and suddenly you could have hundreds of people and that just liberated you with a lot of the mundane, you know, uh, backups, UPSs, you know, all that kind of stuff that you have to do to maintain uh, a robust network and file service. So that, I agree, is the cloud computing for me just liberated us and allowed us to start doing. It then also brought a whole new set of issues as the ethical issues of, you know, social media, uh, privacy, and, you know, moving from a private world to public world, and this whole surveillance capitalism. So, you know, we gave something up for convenience, but by that convenience and seamlessness, we now have a new creative tension. Definitely. The surveillance economy and a lot of the ethical issues and also the rapid pace of change. I think, you know, a lot of schools are engaging with it, but for a lot of teachers and parents, it's quite difficult because it's so different from what their point of reference is and how do you mindfully move forward and engage with that, but not also lose the things that really work and the things that make your school uh, function and make your school uh, a place where parents are satisfied that they've got a product, that there's a good return. Definitely. And I think that's where we are. We're kind of in this messiness now. Definitely. Well, that's a good good point to, to, to move on to this kind of event stuff, I guess, to, to, to finish off because... You know, that obviously Prague is where we met and we started, I ran my first ever, ever events with you. It's interesting what you say about the whole privacy, digital citizenship stuff, because I think for me, that's almost like, even though your day job is, is tech director, I, I think that's what you're the most interested in. I can just, because if you look what someone posts on social media, you can see what they're really interested in. And I think for you, that's like the area that you're really like the most passionate about, if I was going to guess. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I personally feel that, you know, in, we missed the boat in 2007 and eight when Google and Yahoo start personalizing the web and you know I'm sure you everybody's seen the TED talk about the filter bubble and all that I think you know schools one of the challenge we have is that we tend to be complacent because the things that we do are quite delicate working with kids and you know is pedagogy it's it's much harder to beta test things you have to be far more mindful and parents are paying money they don't want their kid to be an experiment you know they Definitely. want their kids to pass exams and get to university. And I think as schools now we're grappling, and I think many schools still are challenged by it, is this whole idea, this shift to where actually when you go on the internet, are you really searching what you want? Or is it the curated experience and the surveillance and the, and the filter bubble that suddenly are pushing you to those different choices? And I think that conversation is one that we're not having. Definitely, and, but I, I, I think for me, the company that's been the biggest issue, obviously we haven't really mentioned, is, is Facebook, which is kind of like, it's not as much on your, on your radar, I guess. I'm sure it's on your radar, but in terms of schools, you know, you know typically don't use it. Yeah that much but but facebook is like that, that this is what shows how it can all go really horribly wrong i'm actually just reading wide mug the new wide magazine today talking about all the stuff facebook's been going through and it's just like uh it's almost the, the filter bubble as you mentioned like that's that's the extreme end of of the kind of thing it can cause and and uh, you know i'm not say i completely hate facebook because they've done a lot of amazing things as well but like that's kind of the one edge case when the whole thing has got a bit out of control i think yeah, and I think, you know, Facebook is a great example, and, and it's often a target, but you have Instagram, WhatsApp, and then you have in other countries like WeChat, you know, uh, and a lot of other places, even in Brazil and Russia. This surveillance capitalism is something everybody's realized. You can make a ton of money 
and you can really get to know who you're dealing with. Yeah, and you data. can at some level manipulate them. That's very powerful. Definitely. And if you're trying to convince a whole group, cohort group of people to buy a product or believe in an idea, then this is an unbelievable weapon. And, you know, I think Facebook is often the, the fingers pointed at them. But the reality is the GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, you name it. They all need to do it because that's how you generate income, Uber, the grocery store. So I think the one thing that for me I'm starting to understand is that capacity, uh, and I don't say it very well, but I would say the, uh, Shoshana Yobov, who uh, just wrote the book Surveillance Capital, says that this, the idea of self-determination, we are losing that capacity, and I call it free will. Do we still have the free will that we, you and I, our generation, Dan and John, had early on? Maybe we didn't have as much, but I sense that level of free will is being diluted more and more. And it's diluted in a very sophisticated way. And that sophisticated way of fake news and uh, surveillance and privacy, we as educators, I think, need to really learn and understand it. And I think what schools aren't doing, we're not doing the professional development to equip teachers to have those important conversations. De definitely, definitely. So John, just John, uh, to close off, like I want to just briefly talk about um, how you've, because um, obviously some of the things we just talked about in terms of digital citizenship, you've become something of an influencer. You've, you've got a Facebook group. And, like, and obviously you built a bit of a sort of side, I wouldn't say career, but a side project where you, you, know, you get asked to go and speak at conferences and, and do training and, and present at universities and things. Like, I'm just wondering like, if you have any, any concrete tips for like, how you manage to make that happen. For some, maybe not necessarily someone working at schools, but just people in general who want to be, because, you know, get expertise in a specific niche and go off and, and, and you know, be paid usually or, or, you know, for free or for money to, to go and train on this. Like, is there any concrete things you can say you've, you've done to sort of build up this sort of, you know, profile outside of your regular job to go off and, 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 and present at, at events? Yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing is relationships. Yeah. is building relationships and it's relationships that are built on respect and being a listener more than a talker yeah and, and um, long term this is something i've learned from you it's all it's you know you, it's all about like you, you relationships are not just something you build over six months you know i'm i've got you know a lot of business relationships now 10 15 20 years now which and and and, and, it, and things come back and i think that's part of it as well yeah i think it's the relationships and also when you uh, when you have those relationships that you're, you know, you're really uh, very mindful of listening and being humble. And I think being humble in the sense of, of saying, you know, I'm going to listen to you and making sure people understand that you've listened to them because when you're talking or engaging with them, they understand that you've heard them. Sure. And, you know, in, in the consultant world, I think it, it's, there's a lot of ego. One thing that I have done is always made sure I'm always working in a school. And today I was, you know, doing things that are not very sexy and interesting. I was under a table pulling a cable yeah. uh, because something was not working and I was helping a teacher. I think also it's about giving. I really believe it's about giving and not expecting things to come back. Yeah. Which yeah. often is very difficult because there's a great book and I'm sure many people are familiar with it, 
It's the book uh, Give and Take by Adam Grant. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't read it. I've heard of it. I need, I need to get it. A few yeah. people have mentioned and, it. Uh, and, you know, you know, these books always you have to take with a pinch of salt. And I think also it's being persistent and reliable. So I post every day on Twitter and my Facebook group and LinkedIn religiously. Yeah. And I don't post, it's not about amplifying who I am, it's amplifying about the ideas that are important for us collectively. And what, and out I, of those three, which, which, uh, would you, what do you get the most engagement out of interest, out of the three? Uh, I would say it's interesting, I get engagement by all three, but very different groups of people. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, it's about, it's a certain level of humility, but being persistent and being out there and always willing, you know, I think if you're going to get into this business, you need to make sure you're getting into the workshops and the conferences and you're really spending time getting to know people. You're, uh, you know, a lot is about follow up. A lot of it, if you're in a conference, making sure you've got your Twitter handle and that what you're posting is, is, is stuff that people can take away. If you constantly pontificate, that's, that can be an, an inspiration. But, what can, but if you put an article or some ecosystem or something that they can take away and build on, then I think people really enjoy it. Because they want when they're, I think for me, when I'm posting, I want to think people can then take this and then do that themselves, amplified in their own professional learning network. Definitely. Uh, so, you know, and I think also being in international schools and being multiple international schools, you get to know a lot of people. I teach at the principal, uh, principal training center. So I've taught now, whew, I think, over 500 uh, heads of schools and principals. So that's a great way to make connections. And it's always, you know, when people connect with you, making sure that you have time for them whenever they connect. Yeah, Not definitely. saying I'm too busy. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, there, there's no magic, but I think the relationships is the most important one. And, you know, relationships that you show empathy and humility and also are always willing to give and be there to support people and not come too strong with judgment. Definitely. Well, look, John, I think that's a, that's a great place to finish. I know you've um, got to rush off and do things at the school. We, we had a bit of scheduling issue. I actually didn't reply to John's email, so it was really John, good of John to be on. Pleasure. And no, I just, you know, I want to say, Dan, I, I, it's been fantastic watching Apps Events grow. And, you know, having been there at the beginning and seeing what you guys are doing. And uh, also just, you know, having been to a lot of events, the, the buzz that people get. And I think one thing that you have done in Apps Events is really a lot of it is about the relationships in your networking party and having practitioners and, you know, really making sure that when people are not doing workshops, they're hanging out and talking to people. And I think that's something of, of, of the sauce that you've created is that relationships and making sure there's a lot of face-to-face -face time as much as the uh, online time. Definitely. Well, they're very good of you to say, John. I mean, it's interesting how, how the business changed. Like, you know, in the beginning, it was just running summits. I mean, now the majority of, of apps events is either doing stuff directly for Google, like, you know, we run stuff, um, yeah. which is kind of, it's kind of funny because when we ran our first event together, I kind of had like half permission from Google. I'd kind of, I, uh, and I, it was kind of very vague, but I, I invited people from Google and they came. So all of a sudden it was the Google event. And now we really are working for Google you know, as opposed yeah, to faking it. I was it, so. watching that Ben and Kim House were up in Sweden. Uh, yeah. Sweden? yeah. And they were doing that. So no, it, it's fantastic. And that you use practitioners, people that are in the trenches, so educators, that are working and then go and share their, uh, you know, it's the idea that you're giving in many ways too. You're asking these people to give back to 
the world of uh, international school teachers. Yeah, definitely. And, and just, just one thing to add to what you said, I mean, like, just I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but tips for people that want to be speakers is like the giving thing is don't, you know, people, some people get super greedy and it's always a mistake. Like I, I presented for free for two or three years before I ever got paid for anything. And still, yeah. and, and now the majority of the times I would say I, d I don't even get paid for presenting, you know, and, and I know some people, they get paid once and you'll, then you'll get an email saying, this is my rate and they become prima donnas. And it's a huge mistake because I hate dealing with these people. Like, you know, I just, because sometimes you just don't have budget or the budget's lower. And, and, and that's something you're very good at. I know you're just, you, you think about paying it forward in terms of, you know, taking a long roll. I mean, don't, you know, this is a tip from me is just don't expect money up front always it, it might come but but you know even even when you're a big name take take free gigs all the time you know because it really helps you i think especially if you're going to be with schools schools it's expensive to get consultants so whatever you can do to build a relationship first and that's something i always do when i meet schools and they say oh can you come and consult i always say we're going to talk for an hour and a half first and we're not going to pay anything we're going to get to know each other and see if it's a good fit that's a great and tip. I think that's really important is to make sure it's a good fit. Great. John, it's been fantastic. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thank you, Dan. Do you want to sell more tickets to your amazing events? Events Frame Event Ticketing has been built to minimize the amount of time it takes to buy a ticket. Result? You sell more tickets. Check out eventsframe.com 